What's good? Welcome back to Black and Published, a podcast for writers, poets, playwrights, and storytellers of all kinds. I'm your host, Nikisha Elise Williams, an author, Emmy Award-winning producer, publisher, all that good stuff. Today, we're talking with Roy Glenn, author of The Deadly Sins and The Master of Urban Suspense. Roy Glenn is a multi-genre author who is best known for his iconic Mike Black saga. Always having a very vivid imagination, Roy began making up stories at an early age. But his passion for writing those stories did not come until much later in life. He said, It began with a thought, and after a while, the characters and the story became clear to me and began to play over and over like a movie in my mind. Is It a Crime is the first book in the Mike Black saga and became a bestseller. Other titles in the saga include Mr. and Mrs. Black, Retaliation, Deep in It, and his latest series, The Deadly Sins. Roy was born and raised in the Bronx and currently lives in Jacksonville, Florida, where he is working on a four-book series project, The Path to the Throne. He recently entered into a partnership with Vision Quest Productions to do a series of short films, the first of which is Changed Man, based on one of his novels. In our conversation, we discuss how his first book was really a response to Waiting to Exhale, what self-publishing looked like in 1994, how he helped start Urban Books with Carl Weber, and oh yeah, how to finesse your books into Barnes & Noble, a real pro tip. Black and published family, let's welcome Roy Glenn to the show. All right. So I always like to start the podcast off with this question. When did you know that you were a writer? When did I know that I was a writer? I didn't know. The better question was, when did I know that I had an active imagination and should have been a writer? It was when I was a little kid and I used to just make stuff up. My grandmother told me, like, boy, you lie like a rug. <laughs> <laughs> a career, because I used to just make stuff up. You know, so, and then I would just, I, um, I was younger than my two sisters, and my father didn't really want me to play with my two older sisters after he caught me turning double dutch for them. He was like, no, you are not playing with the girls anymore. So I spent a lot of time by myself as a child, and I just had an active imagination. So that's where it started. I didn't realize that I could write something until I was into my second phase of college. I had um, left Georgia College and I went back to school with the cab, the cab tech in in Georgia to go back. So I was taking an English class and I wrote a paper and I got a B on it. And the professor said, you know, this is very good. If you clean up all the errors, I'll submit it to a statewide writing competition. And I said, but I got a B. And that was that. I settled for the B and, and didn't even think about writing it anymore. Yeah, that, that's the look I have now. Like, you know, opportunity missed. But God's, been, God's good to me. So he um, brought the opportunity back around. Um, I became a writer after um, 
I got divorced and I was complaining to my sister about not understanding women. And she said that I should read Waiting to Accept, that it wouldn't, it would give me some insight into women because I'm like, I don't understand women at all. So this is like 1992? Yeah, this is like early on. This is early 1992. So um, she's like, then not all women are like that, but it will give you a little bit of insight into them. So I read it and I got upset because it was kind of an exercise in male bashing. So I decided that I was going to write a book. And a couple of years later, when I actually got around to it, the story that I was thinking about wasn't there, but is it a crime was. So I started writing, is it a crime? And then somebody told me it was good. This is 1994. Okay, I got to go back a couple a couple of ways because one, okay, how, how old were you when you were making up all of these stories? You know my son, Mylon, and so he's five now. So he makes up elaborate stories and I have learned to determine when he's telling me the truth and when he's just making stuff up by how he tells the story and where he pauses in the story, whether it's true. So like at first I was really concerned about things that were happening to him. And then I was like, wait, no, he's making all of this up just to keep me entertained. (laughs) So how young were you when you were making up these stories? I guess seven or eight, maybe nine. It got more intense. I started actually, you know, when I started to to really appreciate movie making, I would make I would make up movies and and be the star of them. So and this is like in when I was in my like 10, 11, 12 years old, I used to imagine myself as the lead singer and guitar player in a band. No, my guitar, my guitar was a baseball bat. I was going to say, do you play any instruments? No, I have no, I have no, you're the lead yeah. singer and guitar player in the band. And yet you don't play any instruments. Mr. Glenn, do you sing? No, I do not. If I started singing right now, people would think it was a comedy routine. Cause they like, damn, these sound terrible. Wow. <laughs> This is my thing. This is this is what God gifted me with an imagination and a voice. He's okay. like, you too many lines already. No, get out of here. <laughs> gave you imagination and a voice. Go on, go on, get. All right. So I want to um, go back. I, I want to go back to to the college story because you said you gotta be, and you refuse to revise it to have it submitted to statewide contests or whatever. How do you look back on that story now, knowing that the biggest part of writing is rewriting and editing? Um, that, like I said, it was it was an opportunity missed because I could have gotten to where I am a lot sooner, but maybe not because it would it would, it would fundamentally change what I write had I gotten into it at twenty as opposed to thirty four. There's a whole different set of life experiences that I had at 34 that I had no clue about at 20. But do you think those experiences made you better when you finally did sit down to write? Yeah. 
because I had I had more knowledge. Um, what I was good at when I w- w- was twenty was, was reading it and and rewriting. You know, it was a college paper, so I just rewrote what everybody else said and, and put it in my own words. So it didn't require any of my imagination. There was no me in there. But here are the facts. I just put it in in, in a good way that she enjoyed. So. But as far as the editing is concerned, had I had taken advantage of that opportunity, then I would be so much further ahead because I didn't learn how to edit until I got a content editor. And back in the days when I started, there was no computer. That word didn't have that, that nice little grammar program. So you turned in a stack of paper and you got back a stack of paper with marks on it. And you had to enter your changes. And you get tired of entering the same change over and over again. So you actually learn. There's supposed to be a comma after that. So you, I learned a lot of editing just by having to do it. Yes, my first four novels were all done on paper by your wife, who is my copy editor, <laughs> and mm-hmm. in red ink. And so, but I could always tell when she got into the story because then I would have less changes. And so I was like, okay. And then I would know that she took a break and then came back to it when I had more after those few pages where she had gotten into it, <laughs> got into the story. Yeah, that is, and I got I, I, that is a lesson I learned. And is it a crime? Because I've had, is it a crime got edited more times than I can count before I published it, before I self-published it. And then it got re-edited and re-edited again when, when it got published by, by, by first by Black Print and then by Urban. But um, one editor told me, and he told me this after I paid him, that you may want to look at chapter 29 because I really got into the story, so I don't know how much editing I actually did there. Really? <laughs> really? So there were some choice words there. I I, I know that I, 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 I had some choice words for him, but it taught me something, that no matter how many times a document gets edited, there's human error in there. There's always an opportunity for human error. So the acceptable industry standard is five errors, supposedly. But no matter how many times you read a book, you can you can always find something that that somebody missed. So it's not a, it's not a science. It's yeah. You do the best you can. We'll get to editing again in a moment. Do you remember the book that you had thought of after you finished reading Waiting to Exhale that you eventually abandoned? Or did you really abandon it? Because you have so many now. Um, yeah, when I actually got to around to writing Is It a Crime? And in the second rewrite, I included a chapter where I allowed one of my characters to do a little female bashing, but it was a half-hearted effort. It didn't last very long. And it was just like, this was supposed to be the point of the story, Roy. 
you need to include this. So I let him have a few lines and, and then moved on with the story because it just wasn't, it wasn't that important to me after two years. Okay. So let's get to, is it a crime? It's 1994 and you have this story, this character, Mike Black, that has basically set the stage for your literary career. Why was it so important for you to tell that story of Mike Black and is it a crime? Mm, it's what came to me. It's the story that came. Uh, I, um, and I'll tell you the story of how it came to me. Um, you a Star Trek fan? No. Parker. So Star Trek, there's a movie called um, Generations where captains Kirk and Picard save the world, basically. And Captain Kirk is like, maybe it's not the woman that I'm missing. Maybe what I'm missing is the the big chair or, or the enterprise. My concept was exactly the opposite. And because of where I was in my life, thinking that, you know, I'm doing all right, but maybe I need a, I, I should have a woman to share all this with. So that's where the concept came from, was from where I was from uh, the original, I want to write a book, to I don't understand women, to that scenario where it's the woman that you're looking for and not to get back into the game. So that's where the idea came from. And the idea, the name came from a friend of mine who used to call herself Fast Black. And that's where the name came from. So it went from Fast Black to Vicious Black. And at the time, they were, Black and Shy were two completely different characters. He was, he wasn't the boss of this criminal empire. No. And she wasn't a million dollar drug dealer. No. They were street people. No. She was, she was running, she ran a corner and he was just the neighborhood tough guy. And as the story evolved, then it became, they became who they were and is it a crime? So by the time I actually started writing it, they had evolved from the characters I first envisioned them to, to where they became, because I didn't automatically go to, hey, let's write a book. No, being the imaginative person that I am, that, that story from Star Trek came first and, you know, a whole set of imaginings and stories came with that. And then you add in the fast black to the mix. And then different scenes started to come to me. No, and part of my imagination is, is visual. So I can see these scenes in my mind. So as seen and as the scene is seen lines up, and I begin to see the, the story, I'm thinking movie naturally, because I see it. But I've never written a screenplay before. I've never even seen a screenplay before. But I have written, a, I've, I've read a book. So 
I decided to write a book at that point. And then some halfway through, somebody told me it was good. Mm-hmm. But you initially self-published. Is it a crime, correct? Yeah. And so this I, is... Um, I was sent like, this... out a bunch, bunch of letters, a bunch of, bunch of query letters. And I got back all of them with the refusal. You know, I got to the point where I would go to the mailbox and I used to just, you know, rip them open at the mailbox. But after a while, it would just be a slow walk into the kitchen and I'd open them over the garbage can. And I would open it up, read the rejection and just let it go and move on to the next one. Okay, but like self-publishing is not an easy decision in 1994. There is no Amazon. There is there's barely an internet. <laughs> there, there, you're absolutely right. It was a, it was a a completely business decision. Walk me through right. it. So, like, how did you make that decision? How did you do it? How did it How did it work? Um, it worked badly at first. Um. I decided after getting turned down so many times, I decided, okay, you know, I can do this myself. So then I started researching what um, at the time were called vanity presses. And it's what they call publishing companies now, but um, it's where you give them money and they publish your book. And my sister's like, no, that's not what she want to do. You don't want to give them your money because the first one of the thing I got into like that is what taught me the real lesson. I had written a poem and I can't remember the name of the poem at this point. And I submitted it to a a poetry book and you pay X amount of dollars and they include it in their book. And coincidentally, my poem was the first one in the book. So I'm like, yeah, right. Okay. Everybody probably got their poem first in the book and, you know, they order some more. I'm like, okay, I can do this myself. So I went out and I bought a book, The Complete Guide to Self-Publishing. I still have this book. And I ran it like a playbook. Everything I did, everything the book told me to do, I did. Only there were some things that I didn't know that I could have done better. So the main thing that I should have known that I didn't know was how to select a printer. And I went to the, the, at the time, equivalent of Kinko's to publish my book. So... For the 25 books that I got them to print, I know you're smiling already because you're not playing with this, right? Um, my book cost was like $11.75 for a $12.95 book. So um, there was that. And then I couldn't sell it to anybody because the quality was so poor that I couldn't sell it to anybody. I'm, I don't know if I still have one of those laying around. I might, I might not. But first lesson was when I went to somebody to um, try to get it at their bookstore. 
And he's like, yeah, okay, yeah. He's flipping through the piece of garbage I just handed him. And he's seeing dollar signs. I can help you. I could teach you to do this and show you to do that. Show you to do that. And I'm like, okay, no. So I just did better research. And I found an actual book printer. And I did make enough money selling those copies that I did have enough to put down on my, on my next run with a, some more money that I got. And I actually made my first run of Visit to Crime. And the next, my next step was, okay, now you've got books. There were a couple of black bookstores in Atlanta that I got into. And a friend of mine, Thomas Green, was the manager at B. Dalton in the mall. Dalton, it's an old bookstore. It's, it's the I remember it. But um, he's like, yeah, you know, you give me a copy and, and I'll get you in the store. And that got me in there and a B. Dalton in Macon. So now my book is available in five stores, which was quite an accomplishment. And then I found a, a the two only black book distributors and that's what got me into it those black distributors don't exist anymore because black the black bookstore structure fell apart like when when the chain stores amazon excuse me walden at the time and and b dalton realized that black people read books, they started opening up bookstores in malls. And that was just a bonanza for me because there were Walden books everywhere. So once I got into, got with the distributor and got into Walden's, and I'd already made those connections with the managers. They're like, hey, just get your book in, in with a distributor. So I, I got with the black distributors first, and that got me into some black bookstores. And then I got with Ingram and Baker and Taylor, and that got me in every place else. And then I was lucky enough at the time, Amazon, um, Barnes & Nobles had a new author program. and. I got in on that, and that's what got me into Barnes and Noble. It didn't get me on the shelf, but it did get me in their catalog. At the time, Barnes and Nobles wasn't really black book friendly, so they had a a black book table, and that was it. I might so, get in trouble for saying this, but it's still not really black book friendly. But you know, go on. No, it's not. And you I want mean, to I, get in trouble for it? It's a fact. It is I not. Say, I, I say what I said. <laughs> it, it's a very true statement. They are not black book friendly. So what I would do is I would walk in there with my book and I would put them on the black book table and go on out. Well, okay then. Oh. 
now, so they're going to walk up to the counter with this book. It's not in the system. Why isn't it in the system? Click, click, click. Oh, we can order this. And that's how I got it. Some more, some more beats, some more Barnes and Noble. I feel like I might do this tomorrow. <laughs> like go to the Barnes and Noble at Town Center and just put my book on the new release table and then just walk out. And just walk out. And walk out. Somebody, eventually, somebody is going to pick up that book and walk it to the counter. They are not going to turn down a sale. It has, it'll get added to their inventory at that point. And once it does, Go and drop off another one. Go check back on it. See if your book is still there. If not, if it's still there, okay. If it's not, drop another one. <laughs> this is game. This is free game because I could, I, I would have never thought because I know I'm in their catalog, like their online catalog. You can go to barnesandnoble.com and get all of my books, but it's not in the store. But wow. My book. After 20 years, you still can't find me in a Barnes and Noble. <laughs> and this is after you've gone from self-publishing, is it a crime, to major publishing, is it a crime? Mainstream published still couldn't break it because there is a, a pecking order in, in, in mainstream publishing. The the name authors get the, got the hardbacks, and they were the ones who got that. So my paperback got on not on the new release table because there was a hardback tape. That's where the new releases were. New to paperback was where I would sit mine. So talk about that transition from hand selling. Is it a crime? Having a bad first run. making connections with these distributors, getting into the mall, and then getting a deal and a contract with, was it what you said, first books and then urban books? Um, The the first deal I got was with with Black Print Publishing. They went out of business shortly thereafter when when Carl left, because that company was started by the Black distributor, a partnership between one of the Black distributors and Carl Weber. The so, Carl Weber, as in from the 90s, Carl Weber. The, the Carl Weber. Um, I met Carl at an author event. And at those events, the sponsors would let everybody get up and do their stump speech before Carl gave his keynote. So I get up, I do my stump speech. And I look in the back of the room and Carl's nodding. So I know I got it. After after he does his keynote, I go by to shake his hand, say, you know, it's good listening to you, blah, blah, blah. He says, don't go nowhere. I want to talk to you. And then he talked to everybody. <laughs> everybody. I'm like, no, I need to go. But after he got through talking to everybody who was begging him for a contract, he got around to me and said, you know, I, I enjoy what you said. I'm going to read your book. I'm flying to California. I'm going to read your book on the plane. And when I get back, I'll give you a call. And he called me and said he was going to sign me. So I signed a little two-book deal. Excuse me, two-bit deal. And then it fell apart because, no, 
<laughs> there were, you know, black people involved. <laughs> I hate that you say it like that, but sometimes we have to do better, black and published. Sometimes we have to do better. We have to, but, you know, there was, sometimes we don't get along with each other when it comes to money. Maybe that was a better way to say that. No, because everybody want to call the shots when it comes to their money. So call left black print and call was like, I'm like, yo, what about me? And I'm like, nope. If I decide to do something on my own, I'll, I'll give you a call. And he decided to do something on his own. And he gave me a call. So that's how we started Urban Books. And what year is this? Um, this is 2004. 2003, 2004. So the second print of Visit a Crime came out in December of 2004. So, so it's 10 19, years between the, the your first, I guess, your first inclinations so to write. And my 10 years later, I was mainstream published. And 1999, I self-published it. Started a publishing company, published my second book, Private Deceptions. Um, the Paragons by Cliff Chandler and the 10-year initiative for the empowerment of Black America by, by Ted Pryor under my, my company, Brittany Press Publishing. Brittany's my daughter. And then I moved on to, to, to Urban. But in between that, there was a lot of hand selling. Well, I there was five years of busing. When um, Arvita and I got married, our honeymoon was a book tour. I remember you telling me this. We went, we went on a tour of black bookstores in the Southeast region. We did Georgia, because we lived in Georgia. We came to Florida, went down to Miami. Then we came back up the other side of, of Florida and headed out 10 to Texas. And we hit bookstores along the way. That was our honeymoon. Wow. So in all that time between hand selling your, I like, I prefer to say independently published book because I pe- feel like people say self-published and then like the snobby could be like, Ugh. so I, like, I prefer to say independently published book. So between hand selling your independently published book and, you know, getting with Carl at Urban after, you know, the Black Print uh, publishing fell apart. What did you learn? Hmm. The biggest lesson that I learned in there was that distribution is everything. Distribution is everything. Being that Carl although he had his started his own company, his books were still being published by Kensington. So he signed a distribution deal with them, which gave us access to one of the big five's distribution networks. So when Carl and I would go to sales meetings, 
we would go to sales meetings with Walmart and and Walden's and Books a Million. And we're in there with the people who are buying books and we're selling, okay, we're going to take 10,000 of those. We're going to take 20,000 of those. We're only going to take 5,000 of that. That's something that I cannot do as an independently published author. I couldn't get a meeting with Walmart if my life depended on it. So that's that's the biggest thing that I learned was when in the brick and mortar days, distribution was everything. The second thing that I learned about distribution is distributors don't sell books. So even though as an independently published author with my own publishing company, with a four book with a four book catalog, even though I'm with Ingram and Baker and Taylor, they're not out selling my book. It's in the catalog if somebody wants to order it. Otherwise, it's in the catalog. So that's the other thing that I learned, that no one is looking for your book. No one is selling your book until you reach that level where distribution is king. So now we didn't have to sell our books because now they are in the store with prominent placement, which tends to sell themselves. Now, back then, as it is now, if you walk into a Walmart, there are only a few books by Black authors, fiction. So we had that market. There were our books and the rest of the big five. So we didn't have to sell our books. They're in Walmart. They're everywhere. Distribution is kings. But now Amazon changed the playing field somewhat. Um, what was your biggest mistake or your biggest lesson that you learned in going between independently publishing and mainstream? Mm. I really don't have any regrets about that. And because it was an all good experience, it did more for me than I could have done for myself. I was just fortunate, you know, to to be right place, right time, I think. And, you know, being God's favorite son helps out a lot, too. (laughs) 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 Um, But I have, I've got, it was a good experience going from one to the other. And going from mainstream, leaving the plantation and going indie has been all good, too. That was my next question. So tell me why. And why do you call it a plantation? Because um, in the contracts that, that you sign, you sign away your name, your likeness, and your ideas. You have no more access to your name. Your likeness belongs to the publishing company to do with what you will. And if you have an idea, I get first dibs on that. 
I write, you write what I tell you to write, and you have it done when I tell you to have it done. No, that's not freedom. Because at the time when we were early on discussing what we were going to do at Urban, I had written a book called Crime of Passion. It's about a lawyer. And Carl was like, yeah, well, I, I want to write some other stuff too, but Urban's what's selling now. So we're going to do this. So my mystery got, got shelved because black people don't read mysteries. Black people want to read this, this drama because that's what we're selling. Urban so fiction, we, yeah. We just went with the market. It was urban fiction and, and mad drama. If you had mad, insane, baby mama kind of drama, that was what was selling them. So the two mysteries that I had written, Private Deceptions and Crime of Passion, got pushed to the wayside until I got stronger as an author and Private Deceptions became drug-related because Private deception sounded too much like a mystery. So it became drug related. But there's where, that's where, and where I, I mean, but this is, that's why I call it the plantation because you do what you're told to do when you're told to do it and in the manner that we tell you to do it. There's a familiar story that I have that I, I, I won't name the name of the book, but we had an objection to the age of one of the author's characters. And we told her to change it. She said no. And we said, okay, we'll publish your book, but it ain't going to Walmart. And that pretty much sabotaged it. Wow. Good book. And the objection was valid because Walmart wouldn't put with was like, no, the character's under age. Make the character 18. And she's like, no. Okay, well. Now I have creative control. Now I write what I want to write, when I want to write it, and I release it when I feel like it. I have creative control over my covers where my um i had no say in, in my first few covers i just got covers and i at, my, at first i didn't have editorial control over my product so i remember that i used to when i got a copy of my book i used to read it to find out what got published wow after you, after you make your changes you don't see it anymore. You don't see the final version. It goes back to somebody else, and that's that. So, and I know personally, I've gotten some books back, and I'm like, here, finish this. Make this better. Tighten it up. So I ghosted plenty of books at Urban. How many books did you publish with Urban before you went back indie? Me personally? Mm-hmm. Not the ones uh, you ghosted, but just you personally. Seven novels and three short stories. 
So what was the appeal of the indie market um, when you went back? What year was that? Um, that was 2006 that I, that I left Durban. And I left Durban over a dispute. And um, that's why I left the plantation. And at the time, I was going to, re to, re to retire. And um, that lasted until I got an idea. <laughs> as soon as Commit to Violence started coming to me, you know, the retirement was out the window. And I didn't have any desire at the time to pursue other book deals, which would have probably been the logical thing for me to do was take my name and my rep and take it to another publisher. But I just didn't feel like doing that. No. I just went and I published it myself. And I was doing all right. And then um, the ebook revolution came along because I had gone back to I gone back to hand selling, and since I was used to it, I, was, I know how to do it. So I published um, "Commit to Violence," "Killing Them Softly," and "Beneath the Surface." And then um, Kindle came along. And that was a boom at first because Amazon hadn't started to regulate their, hadn't started to drive the price point down. So I was selling my ebook for seven and eight dollars, which was less than the paperback price then. And so I was doing all right. I was able to put my daughter through through college with some, with some of that money. But then Amazon began to drive the price point down and the whole Kindle Unlimited thing showed up and that just drove, them, drove the price point down to a point where, you know, I write for love now. Because I'm about to say, like, it's hearing you talk, say that you put your daughter through college with your Kindle sales is a lot different than what independent authors face now going into going into a KDP or any other on-demand book distribution platform. It, it, it's very different. There, there, was a, there was no KDP then. So there was, you sold a book for six, seven dollars. That was your money. You're still getting seventy percent of that, so it's like five, six dollars a pop you're getting from your book. That's real money, as opposed to the thirty-three cents that Amazon would like you to earn now. And that's what Amazon would like you to earn is thirty-three cents. Yeah, I always take the seventy percent option. Yeah, but that's not the option they want you to choose. If you do that whole beta thing, no matter what you, I put in, I, I told you I did, I did box sets. So it's a three book box set. I put just for laughs, I put this book, three book box set 
into that beta matrix. You know what price it told me I should sell it at? What? Two ninety nine for a three book box set. Yes, it's a scam. Pucha. So Amazon <laughs> wants you to price your product at two ninety nine because that's where they feel they can make the most money, and they are. And not you as the author, them as the company. No, because if they wanted the author to make money with KDP, it wouldn't be based on their arbitrary rate. It would be based on the author's selling price. So I would price my book differently. I would price it higher. But right now for KDP, you're only going to get a dollar for every 200 pages. So no matter what you price your book, at, it is not made for you to make money. It's made for Amazon to make money. But it is the only game in town. So. I won't say it's the only game in town. That's another episode. But it's the most, it's the easiest to use, I think. And it's what everyone goes to when they think about publishing a book and they don't know how to enter into the industry. And so I guess you say, you know, like right now you do it for the love. Should every author do it for the love? Going into this with no experience and no connection? To do it for their own reasons. You know, but. Going into it thinking that that you are going to be a millionaire is is false. That shouldn't be where you come up with where you where you go into it at. No, because no one's looking for your book, and you're not a celebrity, so. Your name is not going to sell the book. So you're going to have to, to, to create a market for yourself. And it's a crowded market. So write the book because you love it, because you love writing, which is why you write anyways, because you love it. You love to write. And then roll the dice. See what you can get. No, because you have invested time and energy and money and in in doing it but i had the unrealistic expectation that i was going to write a book and i'd seen i'd watched television and everybody writes a book and they have a book signing and people line up around the block to come to this book signing and that's what i thought was going to happen that's what always happens on tv so i was shocked when I was sitting there and people just kept walking by me until I started talking to them and learn how to hand sell. And those were the days when you could hand sell your product. It's hard to hand sell an ebook. Bookstores are, are few and far between now. I was riding on Atlantic and I see the books of millions closed. It is? Yeah. I didn't know that closed. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Unless I was driving too fast to notice, but yeah. Bookstores are getting hard to find, so book festivals 
have become the way that authors are selling books. Yeah, I did. I did a lot of book festivals last year, 2019, and a lot of traveling for them. And they're not all worth it. No, they are not. The, the expense of being in the festival, of getting to the festival, depending upon where it is, they're not all worth it. No, they are not. So you have to choose your events wisely. And you have to look at them, especially the ones that you spend money on and don't necessarily make your money back. You have to look at those as marketing opportunities. No, people that didn't know who you were now know who you are. You've put your book or your materials in somebody's hand that might think about you the next time they buy a book or they may see your bookmark and say, hey, I want to read this. So that's how I used to look at those. But like I said, we we used to be road warriors. And had it not been for a pandemic this year, that was my plan for this year, was, was to be a road warrior. Do you embrace being an independent author now that you've been doing it so long and have 70 some books to your name? Yeah, I, I wouldn't do it any other way at this point because I, I have creative control. And the way the market works now, I couldn't release one book a year and be economic, do the things economically that I want to do because there isn't a lot of money. So for me to do the things economically I, I, ha- I want to do, I need to write and release. So that's what I've been doing. And one of the books you've written is Changed Man, which you're going to be reading from. So where is this in the saga of Roy Glenn books? <laughs> okay. Um, is it a crime? And the quote unquote Mike Black saga starts with is it a crime? And at that time, Mike Black is 34 years old. At this point, where I am in the series now, he is married and has three children and he is stepping back. So that's where he is now. The book that I'm going to read from came from a different series that I wrote was kind of a prequel, a three-book prequel of Mike and Bobby Ray when they were young men. So it takes place right when he starts to take over the gambling from his drug dealer boss and become less drug dealing enforcer and boss of his own family. So this is where he begins. The second book in the series, that book is called Hospital Takeover. The second book in the series, Changed Man, takes place after a tragic event in his life. And he just goes on a kind of a killing spree after that. Okay. 
to the point where they have to send him away. And I'll tell you, um, one what the what the event is. One of his his childhood friends overdoses on cocaine in his apartment, and he goes a little crazy over that. Yeah, that's traumatic. Uh, anytime Andre would send him to collect from a drug dealer, he would just kill them because now he doesn't like drug dealers, so he just killed them, which is bad for Andre's business. So Andre sends him away. Okay, and. What I'm about to read, if I can find it quickly, is... You have um, editing. You can find it. <laughs> is um, what he um, finally decides to be to change himself. He realizes who he is, the position he is in, and that he needs to change. So that's where changed man is. So now... I'm going to put my glasses on. Okay. And see if I can find. Here we are. I'm ready when you are. Change man. Here we go. You know, flew back to Nassau and I went home. On the way back to New York, I had a lot of time to think and a lot to think about. I've been gone a long time, a lot longer than I planned. I thought I'd stay in Nassau for a week or two and come back, but I've been gone for almost two months. I think a large part of that was because of Felicia and Cortisha, but it's more than that. I learned a lot about myself and who I am, and I learned some of it from them. Talking to Cortisha allowed me to explore thoughts and concepts and ideas through her sexy conversation that expanded my mind. I like that. I like smart women. Which leads me to quiet, shy Felicia. She didn't talk anywhere near as much as Corticia, but Felicia saw right through me. Corticia didn't see me at all. Had she, I have no doubt that she would have gone and spoiled it all and said something stupid like, I know you're in pain. Let's talk about it. But not Felicia. She saw the pain that I thought I was doing a good job at hiding. And even though she seemed to understand and had even had some insight into it, she allowed me the space to work through it. Or maybe it was just that talking about my feelings would cut into her fucking time. And trust me, Felicia Brown took her fucking time very seriously. I learned a few things about myself. I learned that I love the beach. I love the ocean. I love women in bikinis, but who doesn't? I learned that I love to travel and go new places and explore the culture. I learned that there are times when my facial expressions and my mannerisms gave me away, and that can't happen. If Felicia figured out to do it, she wouldn't be the only one. So it was something that I had to work on. I could no longer be prone to fits of anger and rage. I had to be smart. I had to be the source of the fucking wisdom, not the cause of the chaos. I was the boss of my own small but growing family. There were people that I were responsible to and for, so I couldn't let my anger influence my judgment anymore. I thought about something Don Coleone said in The Godfather. It was something that I needed to embrace. He said, I spent my life trying not to be careless. 
Women and children can be careless, but not men. I had been careless. What I had done because I was mad about killing Vicky, not to mention killing Silky for no other reason, because he fucking deserved it. It was reckless, careless, and brought this motherfucker Kirk into my world. And more importantly, it brought him into Andre's world. Careless, reckless, and stupid, so it had to stop. I needed to be like the ocean, the perfect blend of strength, power, and calm. A quiet, peaceful man, but to have the, dis- the potential to be destructive as fuck. That's the new Mike Black. When readers go on this journey of Mike Black, the beginning to end, what do you want them to get out of the story? <clears throat> Entertainment. People have asked me for years, is there a, a point that I'm trying to make? No, I'm not. I'm not trying to make any point. I'm not trying to do anything. These are not socially conscious books. Um, they're entertaining. They're the only point that that you'll get out of them is um, honor and loyalty and love for your friends and family means something. I think that's the point that you'll get in reading every book in the saga that it's about honor and loyalty. You know, there is sex and murder and violence, but they conduct themselves in, in an honorable manner. And it's more of a mystery series. I give, they solve mysteries. They're drug mysteries. But <laughs> um, and we're going to do a speed round in just a second, but I wanted to ask you, because we've talked so much about the industry and being indie and not and the barrier to entry. A few weeks ago, it was announced that, you know, the big five are probably going to become the big four because Random House is going to acquire, I believe, Simon and Schuster. What do you think about that and how that will affect the industry of writing and publishing, especially for Black authors? Um, it narrows that, an already narrow window even more. Because there are only so many seats at the table. And with the declining profit margin that Big Pub has to work with because they can't hide their profit margin in paper in, 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 in hardbacks anymore. Because that's where the bulk of the money comes from, is hardbacks. So your, your big name, James Patterson or Roberts, can't carry the publishing house on their back anymore because their money is dwindling. So when you get back down, when you finally get to your your black publishing niche, how many seats you got left? And with the sales the way they are, are you giving advances? A couple of hundred dollars, maybe. Mm. No. Back in the heyday, my my advance was fifteen twenty thousand dollars. No, someone when I I, I did make an inquiry because a, a friend of mine was agenting, and had gotten with a publisher, and she's like, "Well, I can offer you three hundred dollars." Really? 
300? Not 3,000? 300? But that's the state of the industry now. It's completely different than it was 15 years ago. And then there's a whole publishing paid me hashtag where it shows the disparity and advances between black and white writers. Have you seen that? No, I haven't seen that. No, I haven't seen that. But from, I, I know it exists from experience. And, you know, I try to, to rationalize it. That our market is, isn't as, as broad as the larger market. We are a niche market, so they're not going to make as much money on them, on us, as they are on. So um, let's compare Brenda Jackson to some, and I can't even call a a white romance writer's name, but Nora. Yeah, good, and. The difference, and I'm sure that that one gets paid more than the other. I don't know this for a fact, but I would I would make that assumption, and I'm sure Brenda's doing all right. But I'm going I'm be willing to bet you that that it's going better the other way. Okay, that feels like a, such a somber note to end on. Okay, we're gonna do the speed round, and we're gonna come back to the final question. Ready? Yeah, we we can pick up something a little. <laughs> <laughs> that felt so somber. Like mm, we don't get paid. Okay, let's go. All right, what's your favorite book that I've written? No, any book, yours or someone else's. Um, my favorite book is the one is always the one I'm writing now. Which is? Um, the World is Mine. I just finished it. So now I am compiling, I am putting together ideas for the next book, You Can Get the Money. And this morning I had that, 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 that moment where your storyline comes together, where that one idea that you've been missing just hits you. So I'm pulling up to a store. I'm like, (laughs) yes. And I ran home and I started typing it up like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you got to watch your time because you got Nikisha, but you got to watch your time. So I feel like I just got blamed and thrown under the bus for wrecking your flow this morning. Yes, you did. But I was done. Because I ran out of ideas at that point. Because I put down everything. I thought, okay, it is nine forty-three. You have time to set up now. Good. So you didn't ruin it. You just added a little more pressure to it. Because like, I got to get this down. I got to get this down. Because if I don't get this down, it may not be here when I get through with this chat. Okay, I, I feel a little better about that now. So is it safe to assume that you are your favorite author? Um, no, actually, the Apostle Paul is my favorite author. Okay. Yeah. Which one of his books? Romans. Everyone loves Romans. All right. Favorite song? Romans is How to Be a Christian 101. 
Favorite, favorite song is um, Automatic. Okay. My friend. And your favorite movie? Casablanca, starring Humphrey Bogart. What do you do when you're not writing? Seeing as how you write so much. (laughs) Play freestyle and listen to music. Freestyle, like on the computer? Yeah. Yeah, I've got like 2,000 and some odd game winning streak going. (laughs) I I never. I don't think I've played freestyle since I stopped having a PC. Mm-hmm. Wow. Pre-sale is what I do when I don't have an idea. When um, I'm like, you know, you need to, this is, this was, that's how it was like, okay, this is your time to write, but I have no idea. So, but you're going to sit here during your time to write. So a lot of that time got to play freestyle until, until the Holy Spirit showed up and said, hey, what you doing, boy? Write something. There's a story so, about Maya Angelou that she would go off to write and she would always take a deck of cards and when she couldn't think of anything, she'd just play solitaire until she got an idea and she'd have like her paper, a, th- a thesaurus and a deck of cards and like a pen or something. And, right, so I'm sitting at the computer. So same story. I just didn't know, I didn't know it was an original, original story. <laughs> yeah. So I feel I, like I'm a good no. <laughs> I don't feel bad, bad now for playing games on my phone when I'm like, I should be writing, but I don't have nothing to say. <laughs> you don't always have something to say, but you know you're supposed to be, but be in position to write. Be open and receptive to it, and it'll come to you. It always does. Yes. Sometimes I, I hear this stuff coming from Who <laughs> you do. Yeah. <laughs> and you, okay, so you've mentioned God throughout this interview and that the Apostle Paul is your favorite author. What role does faith play in your life? That um, everything that there is, everything that I am revolves around my relationship and my faith in God, it all comes from him. I believe that, that my ideas, my talent, my enthusiasm, everything that I've gotten, everything that I am is a gift from God. So, Okay. This is something that I struggle with, especially with my first book. You write about sex, drugs, people killing each other. All the breaking all of the commandments, basically. How do you reconcile that with your faith, or do you? Um, when I first started writing, I wasn't the person of faith that I am. Um, so there was that. And now I look at it as God knows what I write. <laughs> The ideas are not my ideas, they're his ideas because everything originates from him and flows through him. So God knows what I write and he hasn't told me to stop. 
And I've asked him several times, God, you want me to write something else? <laughs> no. Put something on me. No. I would like to write my interpretations of, of the Paul's epistles, but he just hasn't put it on me to write that yet. I keep coming up with new ideas for what I do. So I believe that all of us are tasked with a purpose. Mine's to entertain. So that's how I reconcile. I may be wrong. One day I may get to the pearly gates and like, you know, those books she wrote. <laughs> <laughs> You might want to stand over there and we'll get someone to talk to you next. <laughs> I'm sure that line will, will have lots of good company, though. <laughs> if you get you pushed to the side. You know what I'm saying? It'll be a, everybody be in that room. <laughs> like, oh, you got you got delayed, too? <laughs> What's up? <laughs> and you talked about this a little bit before and like even your routine this morning, like it just kind of fell on you. The ideas come, but like from where does it come? Do you have a specific source where you know your inspiration comes from other than God? Or is it just something that like the Star Trek thing for Is It a Crime, like that was a trigger for you? What are some of the other triggers? Everything. Everything. Everything and everybody. Stuff that I watch. No things that I read. No, um, I I research a lot, and ideas come from that. No, I read a lot of old gangster stories, so ideas come from that. No, they just come from place, different places, different things, different twists on an idea, and. If I focus on something long enough, it will eventually come to me. Because I knew what I wanted to do with this story. I knew what I wanted to do, how I wanted to get into it, and how I wanted to come out of it. But there was a piece that I was missing. Uh, and that piece defined the entire story. And it just came. It just popped right in. No. So I don't know where it came from. No, because I had gone to the store, got to the store, mm -hmm. and there it was. So sometime between pulling in the parking lot and putting it in the park, that idea just showed up. Okay. And my last question for our for our chat today. So you've written 70 some novels more or less that's a lot of words on paper someone somewhere has probably read all of those words or will someday when you're dead and gone what do you want people to write about the legacy that you've left behind hmm that he did good work That no, it's um, 
I never really gave that much thought. You know, just the fact that what I have thought about is that um, I'm here forever. A part of, of world history, I'm a part of it. That the history of the world doesn't get told without some small mention, a footnote about there was a writer named Roy Glenn. Mm. That in some historical record, no, there's me. There's a moment in Star Trek when they um they come back, they're back in the future, and they come back to the past. And one of the books that the classical books that they read is the collective works of Jacqueline Suzanne. And those are classics. So maybe in the future, the collective works of Roy Glenn will be classics. Like Shakespeare. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. You know, that someday someone will say, yeah, he put it down. And we're going to stop there. Thank you so much. Anytime. I wish you all the best with this. Big shout out to Roy Glenn for joining us today on Black and Published. Make sure you check out Roy Glenn's latest book, Wrath, which dropped on December 2nd, 2020. And if you're not following him on the socials, make sure you follow Roy on Instagram at Roy Glenn Books. That's Roy Glenn with two N's, G-L-E-N-N Books. That's our show for the week. If you like this episode and want more Black and Published, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on your podcast platform of choice. Also, don't forget to rate and review the podcast. Leave a comment, a positive one. We like those. You can also follow Black and Published at Black and Published on Instagram and Twitter at BLK and Published. And to keep up with me, head to newrights.com or follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Nikisha underscore Elise. That's our show. We'll holler at you next week. Peace.